Chris is out sick today. I think he's sick of all the winning. <laughs> it's a Georgia Bulldogs reference. Check. <laughs> so so um, I have the honor and the privilege of um, preaching his notes. This will be not, not unlike... Not unlike when the Apostle Paul would say, take my letter and read it to the churches. This will not be canon scripture. We will not uh, revere it as such, but we're going to do our best to unpack this passage in Luke 15. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. And if you don't have a Bible, one will appear. Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help today. We ask for your grace that you would have us open our hearts and minds to what you might speak to us, both collectively and individually that we could learn something new about you, Lord, something that would perhaps challenge or transform the way we see you in our imagination. And we also pray for healing for our brother Chris. We pray that you would restore his body to health. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, amen. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read some of these notes and interject some of my own, uh, and we'll just uh, we'll see how it goes. So, uh, yeah. So Jesus is teaching in response to grumbling, as we just said, that the Pharisees and the scribes, the really religious people, were grumbling because Jesus had been spending time with bad people. And these two stories are told in response to this grumbling. It's Jesus' response to them. Now, if we misunderstand that is the context, then we'll think these are just kind of nostalgic, kind of feel-good or fun or sweet stories, and these are not. They're actually stories meant to challenge the perception that the religious had of Jesus and who he is and what he was about. So before we get into the two parables, though, we should ask a question. What does it mean to be lost? Both of these parables, both of these stories have the principle of something being lost. We have a sheep that's being lost, and we have a coin that's been lost. When I was reading these notes, when I was looking at this text, I instantly thought of my, like a season where I felt a bit lost, where I felt a bit out of the sight of God. And you probably have been there, and you might be there this morning. 
The gift of God is that he meets us where we're at. He doesn't meet us where we think he wants us to be. He meets us in reality of where we're at. And so I want to encourage you to simply name that. If you're in a space where you feel lost, where you feel hidden, know that God knows that and he's longing to meet you in that spot. When we look at the grumbling of the Pharisees because he was associating with undesirable people, we get a feel, a picture of what Jesus was after. See, these people were lost. It says they were tax collectors and sinners. Jesus doesn't argue the point with the Pharisees. He doesn't say, no, no, these people are fine. He actually affirms it. So who were they? Tax collectors. If you work for the IRS, God bless you. (laughs) Tax collectors would be even viewed with a... uh, much more negative light in, uh, in, in first century. They were, they were Jews who were taking taxes from fellow Jews, skimming some off the top, getting rich, and giving it to Roman occupiers. So they were not at all looked well upon. They were not at all beloved of the community. So that one makes, makes sense. Who, who would like a person like that? Now, sinners, it's not explicit here. Some might think it's prostitutes and the like, uh, but it's a fairly general term, and it usually is just referring to um, people that are unreligious or irreligious, people that um, don't know the rules, people that don't know the, uh, well, the people that the Pharisees would consider uh, hopelessly irreligious. And so, Jesus is having dinner with these people. These are the undesirables, the, the bad people he's having dinner with. He's spending time with them, and that's okay. But dinner, that's where it gets a little, a little fuzzy for these Pharisees. Because having a meal with someone in ancient Israel would have been akin to sharing life. It's not just sharing food. It's sharing life with someone. It means welcoming them, recognizing them, accepting them. So the fact that Jesus would share food with such sketchy people is causing the stir, and rightly so. He's giving the indication to all people that he's willing to be associated with folks that the religious people, the good people, would never associate with. So why would Jesus do this? Why does he associate with sinful folk? The end of chapter 14, right before we read our text here, gives us a clue as to who was paying attention to Jesus and who was not. The words immediately preceding what we read today tell us this. Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. So who came near and who listened? Was it the religious? Was it the cultural elite? It was not. If we go back to verse 1, it says the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him. So why were they coming near to Jesus? There's something about Jesus that pulled them in an increasing awareness that he possessed something they needed. See, Jesus is able to make us aware of our need and of the fact that he alone is able to meet our need. And it gets back to what I was saying, if you feel lost, are we able to name our need? Are you able to articulate your need, to name it with some specificity? 
Because Jesus can meet us in that place. The minute that we forget that, we kind of put space between us and him. He's a God who loves to meet us right where we're at. Being aware of our need for Jesus is what enables us to truly come into contact with him. And he accomplishes these things through his pursuit of us. So Jesus didn't just like hanging out in bars with bad people. There's not a hint of that in scripture or in this chapter. He prefers these sinners to come to him and to repent, to make a change. And that seems to be what's happening to the people who came near to Jesus. He loves hanging out with those who are interested enough to come close and listen regardless of their background or their pedigree. So it appears that these sinful folks heard him, came near to him. And what we see in these two stories supports this. And there's actually a third story right after the text that we read today. There's the story of the prodigal son, and we won't have time to get into that today. But all Jews, uh, including the Pharisees, the religious right, would have believed that God would welcome a penitent sinner back. But the idea that God would go seeking after someone was foreign to them. That's why I love the songs we sing. They remind us of that. I believe that we potentially have allowed some errant thinking about who God is to creep into the church over the last hundred years. And what we do here what we do at home, when we sing, when we read, when we pray. It's our efforts to reach God. It's our efforts to connect with him. And so the idea of a God that pursues us is kind of foreign to our imagination. It's lost on us. We can tend to view God as, you know, the Godfather. You know, you come groveling back, you know. And it's like we expect him to, like, punish us. But there's no fear There's no trembling in these parables. A God who pursues you, a God who hunts for you, who seeks you out to be in relationship. Do we have an imagination for that type of God? I mean, that's what Emmanuel means. Jesus is referred to as Emmanuel throughout Scripture. He's God with us. And we see in John that he took on human flesh but he, in the words of Eugene Peterson, moved into the neighborhood. If that isn't pursuing us, I don't know what is. So, Holy Spirit, help us have a renewed imagination for a God, a Jesus, who goes out of his way to pursue us and find us where we're at. So there's two stories to paint this picture, a lost sheep and a coin. In the story about the sheep, Jesus is appealing to custom. Any shepherd would leave the 99, and they'd leave them in safety, and he'd go look for the one that was lost. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees what they already knew. And what Jesus tends to do in parables is say things that are kind of common and known, and then put a little bit of a twist on it so that we get a a better glimpse of what he's really about. So the job of a shepherd is to search and then bring the lamb home to safety. However, there is a personal, a really beautiful touch in the recovery portion of this text, of this parable. It says, Jesus says that the shepherd brings the lamb home on his shoulders. Ugh, he's not grumbling. He's not going, oh, you ran away. 
Now I have to carry you back. For those of you parents who've lost a child in a store, you're happy you found them. But if you're like me, you're also grumbling. (laughs) How could you do this? Stick with me. Why are you running off like that? That's not what we see here. We see a God who is so overjoyed that not only does he carry the lamb on his shoulders, he's rejoicing as he returns. He comes home and not only is he like, yay, he calls his neighbors and throws a party. A party. Beautiful. The second story centers around a lost coin. So a woman loses a gold coin, and we can tend to think of this as insignificant. I was cleaning out a car this weekend, and there was a quarter that was stuck, as they tend to do in the console. And if you're like me, you kind of wonder, is 25 cents worth getting all of that goop in my fingernails? I don't know. That is not the kind of coin we're looking at here. It's not like losing a nickel or a dollar. Uh, If we we thought that, it'd undermine the entire integrity of the story. What we're looking at here is a coin that would be, uh, to this woman, almost considered a part of her savings. Uh, Perhaps it's for a dowry. And for a woman in this culture, um, it would represent even a part of her future, part of her stability. And so she is examining her money. Some of it's missing. She panics, and what does she do? She begins to sweep the house. She searches and searches and searches for it. So have you ever lost something that you knew you could do without? Probably. If you've ever been with children, you lose one. I have three kids. (laughs) My wife and I would not say, well, we brought two out of the three home. Those are good odds. Those are, uh, those are actually Hall of, Fame, Hall of Fame numbers. That'll get you in the Hall of Fame there. No, we get all the kids because we can't live without them. This woman knew she couldn't go on without this coin, so she searches. She finds it. She could not spare losing this coin. See, she didn't have the margins or the mindset for what a loss like this could mean. She couldn't cut her losses, and that is actually how God feels about you. That's how it feels about me. He doesn't look at us when we're lost and say, ah, I've got a kabillion other people here. I've lost a couple. That's no big deal. No, he loves us dearly. God does not cut his losses when it comes to his children. See, we live in a culture that teaches us to cut our losses, to to move on. And we know that feeling. Most of us can go about knowing that there's something we shouldn't fight for any longer and, and some Depending on the circumstance, that could actually be a good thing to do. But the point of this story is to paint God in a completely different light. If you belong to him and become lost, he will search and search and search. He will not cut his losses and you will be found. Both stories end very similarly. And when he comes home, Jesus says, when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And when she, the woman, has found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Jesus makes the point, the rejoicing he speaks of is the rejoicing that's actually taking place when people are found. 
Verse seven, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what happens in heaven when a person chooses to listen to him, to draw close to him. If we want to be people that mirror heaven, that copy heaven, we should celebrate and throw a party every time one of us stops to listen to Jesus. Every time one of us turns from our own way in order to follow God's way. It's kind of like when you give good advice to someone and they finally follow it, you're like, it's about time. That can be our attitude a lot of times. And yet Jesus is saying our attitude should be a little bit more of one of rejoicing, of celebration, of gratitude. That something that was lost, something that was wayward has found its way back into the fold. Are we the kind of people that can celebrate, that can enjoy and rejoice in that? And at the end of all of this, the text begins with Jesus is willing to engage. Let's not forget that. The reason he's telling these parables is because he's willing to engage with tax collectors and sinners. Anyone who will listen and change their way regardless of where they come from. I believe we must always remember this. We must always know this about God. That's who he is. God is pursuing you. God is pursuing all of us. If you think back over your week and you think of that, maybe there was a conversation or something that happened where it was good, it was a blessing, there was a kind word or something, I would propose that that might be the goodness of God pursuing you. See, Scripture tells us it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. And repentance means, you know, rethink your thinking, to change your way. It's his goodness that compels us to do that. So if you were raised in a church where we need to turn to God because of fear of punishment, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to rewire our understanding of who Jesus is, to broaden our imagination, to see him as a shepherd who seeks after the lost. So today, if you are in a place where you feel lost or disconnected, if you feel kind of like a sheep, kind of like the coin, God is searching for you. He's wanting to welcome you back home. If you don't know God, then this is extremely important for you to keep in mind. And if you feel disconnected from God, likewise, it's important for us to keep this in mind. He will not stop. Just like that song we sang, Reckless Love. There's no shadow he won't light up to find you. There's no mountain he won't climb up looking for you. Picturing the shepherd walking around the backside of a mountain looking for that lost sheep. That is the picture that Jesus is giving us in this text. That song, Goodness of God, it's so powerful. I particularly have the second verse where it says that I have lived in the goodness of God. And there's seasons where that doesn't feel true, and yet I can look back and see his faithfulness for where he's pursued me, even in the seasons that felt like I was lost. And I'll just 
encourage you guys, if, if you need something to help you throughout the week, see, worship music is such a gift because it helps our bodies remember long after our minds have forgotten. That's why songs are so important to the church. So go listen to Reckless Love and Goodness of God over and over this week if you need to keep this imagination, this stirring in your mind and your heart. He's not gonna leave you alone. He's not gonna leave me alone. And I'll say this, we, if, you're, if you're thinking of turning back to God or you're in a place where you're like, I don't really know, don't fear reprisal. If you've been on a bit of a walkabout, if you're on a bit of a deconstruction, he wants to welcome you to who he truly is. Again, the prodigal son is the very next text, and I wish we could get into that because when the prodigal returns, if you know the story, he's clothed. He's given a ring signifying authority. A, a, a fatted calf is killed. There is a huge celebration. That is, again, a third parable of what happens with the heart of God and with all of the heavenly angels when we turn to him, when we listen to him. So God is wanting to welcome us all home. It's who he is. It's what he's like. <laughs> so I'm going to leave us with these reflective questions. So where in your life do you feel lost right now? And how might your experience of this lostness be altered by these two stories? And I'll add a third one. If you're in a place where you don't feel lost and you feel like you're doing really well, I would say how might you pray that God would help you love those who do feel lost? How might you move towards them the way Jesus moves towards us? So let's take a moment, reflect before we prepare to receive communion. If you're able, if you please stand.